0: Let's pray. Lord, we just uh, again come before you, Lord. We thank you for the word of God. Thank you for this chapter, Lord. And um, Lord, we pray that you would, Lord, open our hearts tonight, Lord, some sensitive issues, Lord, that will be discussed. And Lord, I pray that you would just have your way. And Lord, that you'd restore and renew us, Lord, in the power of your spirit, Lord. And regardless of what the world may think or what the world's response to us might be. Lord, help us to follow you and to trust you and to obey you in all that you say, Lord. And so, Lord, open our uh, minds and, and be glorified this night, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Kings uh, chapter 18. We're going to look at 19, actually. But the week before last, we looked at the 18th chapter, and it was when Elijah really had his face-off, if you will, with the prophets of Baal, the 450 prophets of Baal in Mount Carmel, which is in the northwestern part of Israel. It's a very beautiful place. It overlooks the the Valley of Jezreel, which many of us know as the Valley of Armageddon, and it really is a a wonderful location. And when you're on top of Mount Carmel, you can look over to the west and you can see the Mediterranean Sea on a clear day, and you can look over to your east and you can see this valley um, that even Napoleon, I believe it says, uh, said this. He said, It's the perfect battleground. The perfect battleground, and it certainly will be a battleground in the future, when Jesus returns to the earth physically in his second coming. There will be a battle of Armageddon there, and it will be a a, a really horrible place, and uh, and that valley will be filled with blood. And um, but so this is where Elijah squared off with these Baal worshippers and these prophets of Baal. And you remember that he even uh, had them prepare a an altar and have fire on it and to put the sacrifice on it. And the the idea was that the God who called down fire upon the sacrifice was the God who is to be worshipped. And so there was immediately this... Uh, juxtaposition of Yahweh, God Almighty God the Creator, and then these uh, and then Baal, who was this God of of the storm and and the fertility and the rain and the weather, and so there was this immediately <laughs> this battle between the two, and the one that answered with fire, they all agreed that they would serve that God. And you remember, they set up the altar, and they, uh, the prophets of Baal all waited upon their God to respond with fire for their sacrifice. Nothing happened, and Elijah uh, taunted them and said, you know, maybe your God is out taking a walk. You know, maybe he's busy. And, um, and, and it inflamed them and incited them even more so that they began to cut themselves In their worship to their God, and began to dance on the altar and try to stir something up, to make something happen so that their God would respond. And of course, his God, their God, did not respond because he's not really a God at all. He's a demon entity. In fact, all the idols of the Gentiles are demons, they're demons. They're, they're false gods. They they're, they're real entities, but they're no power. They have no power over God, and they certainly are not omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent like our God is. Our God wins. Our God is bigger, he's better, he's most most glorious. He's bit bigger than any other god. Our Father is almighty God. Never forget that. When you're going through difficulties and maybe you've come in tonight and you, the, the world is weighing heavy on your heart, never forget who your God is. He's the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's the one who spoke and uh, when there was nothing and he spoke and things came into being. He's the one who has everything ordered just right. And it's not his fault what we see going on in our country and even in our world. It's not his fault. That is just the ramifications of man left to his own devices and separating himself from God, it reminds you of Psalm 2, where there's like this, this cord between us and God. And I liken it to an umbilical cord between a, a mother and, and their infant. We, the, the, the baby receives the nutrients from the mother through this cord. But in Psalm 2, it says, well, Let's cast the cord from us and let's do our own thing. Why do the nations, the heathen rage, and the and nations imagine a vain thing? It makes no sense. And so if you're here tonight, know that God is almighty God. And he, when he faces off with any other God, he has the ability to make that God, lowercase g, mute. Where that God cannot respond and is unable to respond because God is almighty. The Bible says that all power is on loan from God. The powers that be are ordained or ordered by God. So everything that we see is ordered by him. He's allowed power over here. he's allowed power over here and it's and, and those people who wield that power are responsible for how they respond to it, how they administrate that power, and what they do with that power, and they're held accountable, and God will hold them accountable. but he allows man to do his own thing, and thank God, all of us here tonight have come because we want. To know God, you've known Him for a long time. I know most of, I know all of you in this room, and I know that you love Jesus Christ. You've been here for years, and we're continually growing in that. We're continually growing in His likeness. We are day by day being uh, changed from glory to glory, and we are slowly being changed into the image of Christ. It is the process of sanctification. And what a wonderful and glorious thing it is. Not always painless. A lot of times there's pain and difficulty in that process, but we are in that process, whether we like it or not. And I'm being changed. Are you being changed? Are you willing to be changed? Well, these prophets weren't willing to be changed. And so. Elijah squares off with them, and, and nothing happens. And so finally, when, it got, when it's starting to get late, he builds his own altar. He puts the sacrifice on the altar. And to make things even more ridiculous, he takes water and he pours it around. He has water poured, not only on the sacrifice and the altar, but he digs a trench around it and just saturates the whole thing with water. So there's no possible way that you can light that fire. And he's not worried that a human being can light the fire because he's expecting the fire from God. And when the fire of God falls, it could be an ocean and it could be incinerated. (laughs) God is not limited. And that's exactly what happens. And then after that, it really, the game is over now. Or it should have been anyway, but it didn't finish the the game, if you will. The game still continued, but it showed in very... uh, Uh, stark uh, contrast the difference between Yahweh, God, Jehovah, Jesus Christ, and these other false gods. And as a result, Elijah takes them down. And probably the people of Israel, him and the people of Israel, brought those 450 prophets of Baal down, right down the hill. And there's a river down there. It's all dried up today, but the river Kishon uh, is there. And that's where he slew those 450 prophets of Baal. Hopefully that would have ended Baal worship, but we know that it did not end it. And so after this great victory, now we come to chapter 19. And because it is a relatively shorter chapter, let's read through it and then we'll come back to it. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 19 it says, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he rose and ran for his life, and he went to Beersheba... Which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there, but he himself went a day 's journey into the wilderness, and he came and he sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that that he might die, and he said, "It is enough now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then, as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him. And said to him, Arise and eat. And then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on the coals and a jar of water. And so he ate and he drank, and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. And so he arose and he ate and he drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And so he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, they've torn down your altars, they've killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. And then he said, "Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord." And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore into the mountain and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after a fire, after the fire, a still small voice. And so it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and stood in the entrance of the cave and suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. And then the Lord said to him, I love this, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shapheth, of Abel-Moholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael... Yehu will kill, and whoever escapes the sword of Yehu, Elisha will kill. And yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there, and he found Elisha, the son of Shapheth, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the 12th. And then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah, and said, "Please let me kiss my mother and my father, and then I will follow you." And he said to them, "Go back again, for what have I done to you?" So Elijah turned Elisha, excuse me, turned back from him, took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh, using the oxen's equipment, and gave it to the people. And they ate, and then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. So a very interesting uh, passage before us. And obviously tonight we're going to see Elijah running from his life, running for his life because of the wrath of Jezebel. After slaying her prophets, because she was, remember, from a, a family of uh, idol worshipers and they worship Baal she learned it from her father and she continued to worship Baal as well and now she had these 450 prophets of Baal. And so when Elijah killed them, she immediately put a contract out on his head and went after him and had other people actually go after him to find him, to kill him in like manner. So we're, we're going to see that more tonight. And, and I also want to look at something within this chapter that I think is important, and that is the role of marriage between a man and a woman. Because we're going to see Jezebel really thrusting herself and her authority Over Her husband Ahab. And we're going to see this um, happen in the 21st chapter, which we have yet to get to. And we will see it later on as well. And we're also going to look at faith versus fear. You know, here this man of God, Elijah, had just did this wonderful spectacle and, and was like a hero of the faith, larger than life, it seems. And then a woman threatens his life and he tucks tail and runs south. It just seems so out of place for a man of that stature and what he had just accomplished, what God had just accomplished through him, but faith versus fear. And also this idea of God speaking in a still, small voice. I like that. I like the fact that God doesn't yell at us, that when he really wants to speak to us, he speaks to us carefully, gently, in a way that is entreatable in a way that we can understand and we will respond to. Because remember, God knows you better than you know yourself. And when he speaks to you, he knows the precise moment that he needs to speak to you. And he's already prepared your heart. He's waiting for that moment when you're ready. Because he's always ready to speak. But he waits in gentleness. He waits until... You're ready to hear it. And sometimes he allows us to go through difficulties, to prime us, to get us to that place where we're just like, oh God, I am just so fed up. And he's like, okay, now I got your attention. Now I can speak to you kindly. I can speak to you where you're really going to understand and it's going to make sense to you. And he does. And those moments, unfortunately, for most Christians, including myself, they don't happen every day. God speaks to me through his word, but I could honestly count on probably two hands where God has been, you know, in major points in my life, at, at, at different forks in the road of my life, God has always spoken to me in ways that I can't, I can't prove it to you, but I know he's spoken, and sometimes it's through his word, sometimes it's that still, small voice. And then you simply trust him, and you step out in that, And of course, at the end here of this chapter, we're going to see the very beginning of Elijah's ministry, which is, um, we'll see more in 2 Kings. We're going to see more of Elisha's ministry But let's go back to verse 1 now. It says, remember, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Yes, all that he had done, how he had killed her prophets. That's like taking her whole fleet of Mercedes-Benz and pushing them off a cliff in California. She was livid. She was upset. She was willing, you know, just flaming with anger to kill him. To kill and take out Elijah. And I think it's interesting that Ahab does this after the grace that Elijah had showed him. We didn't really talk about this tonight when, when I was uh, summarizing chapter 18, but in chapter 18 there was a point in verse 41 where this this drought had been going on for three and a half years, and you remember in verse 41 it says that Elijah said to Ahab, "Go up now and eat and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain." So, you know, uh, Elijah is being very kind to uh, King Ahab. He doesn't deserve the kindness, but in the God's love toward this man is still prevalent and Elijah is being very respectful to him saying hey you better go up eat because it's going to rain and this three and a half years of drought is about to end so if I were you I'd go up higher into the mountain have your sacrifice or eat whatever you're going to do and do that because the rain is coming now if he didn't really care about Ahab he would have just not even paid attention to him at all and let him starve or let him go hungry for a night But he doesn't. He tells them. He says, it came to pass in the seventh time, this is verse 41 of chapter 18, that Elijah said, there is a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. And so he said, go up and say to Ahab, um, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. So here is another grace that Elijah had given to Ahab that Ahab didn't deserve. You know, you better get... You know, now that you've eaten, you might want to get down and get down to Jezreel where your you know, your your temporary housing there. Go down there because it's going to rain. It's going to rain pretty hard. If he didn't care, he would have just let him go and said, "You know what? You're a foolish man and what you got, you got coming to you." But notice that Elijah didn't do that. He was in complete control because God was in control of him. And that's a good question for you and I. Does God have control over you? Because if he has control over you, then you're in complete control because you're in control of God and he's got control over you. See, if I'm in control, I'm in a big mess because then I'm just doing my own thing. But when God is in control of my life, I'm in control because he's in control. And people notice that about you. Do you know that? when God is in control of your life? While everybody is frazzled and freaking out, you're the only one who kind of walks in the room and goes, what's, what's happening? And they're like, don't you know? It's like, no, and neither do I care. God's still on the throne. There's something about that peace that God does in the heart of a Christian that provokes people. It really does. It provokes them. And they're like, they look at you like a cat testing for new eyes. They're just like, What's the matter with you? And you're like, well, I've got the Spirit of God in me. And I'm not worried. But even after this grace... That's been given to him he still holds a grudge against Elijah and even refers to him as a troubler of Israel or his enemy. In 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 7. That's exactly what Ahab said to him. It says in verse 17: then it happened when a- Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? What a way for a king to address a prophet. And yes. From his perspective, from Ahab's perspective, Elijah was a troubler because he didn't have good news to tell the king. And why didn't he have good news to tell the king? Because the king was so engrossed in his own idolatry and his own stubbornness, the only thing that Elijah could share with him is warning and judgment. And so therefore, there was only bad news for him. But at any moment, he could have turned from that. Ahab could have said, you know what, Elijah? Everything that you've said so far has come to pass. And you know what? I'm just really tired of fighting against God. Like he would tell Saul, Saul, are you tired of kicking against the goats? Are you tired? Are you, are you weary of it? Have you gotten to the end of yourself? He even told him that he was his enemy in 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 20, which we have yet to get into, Ahab refers to him, and it says in verse 20, So Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And I love what Elijah answered. He says, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. You've sold yourself. Who did he sell himself to? Yes, our adversary, Satan. When you don't do God's will, you're serving the other master, lowercase m. People think, well, I'm, I'm serving, you know, my own interests. Well, if you're not serving God's interests, you're serving your own interests, and I hate to say it, but your own interests are all wrapped up in the little ball called Satan's interests because it's all self-centered, and he is the king of self-centeredness. He is the king of self-focus, and so if you're self-focused and self-centered, you're listening to the Pied Piper of Satan, and you're not following Christ. It's that simple. And I love this. This confirms what Jeremiah said in chapter 17, in verse 9. What did he say? The heart, God tells Jeremiah, he says this to Jerusalem. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And I love it because the very next verse, verse 10, God answers his own question. So if the heart is deceitful above all things, who can know it? And God says in verse 10, I, the Lord, Search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. God answers his own question, because he alone knows. Does that bring comfort to your heart, to your weary heart tonight, that God knows? I find great comfort in knowing that he's omniscient. He knows all things. He can't learn anything because he's completely aware of everything. What's coming around the bend? What's going to happen next year? The injury that I had today or the injury that I'm going to have three years from now or, or the spot that's going to show up on the x-ray next month when I go in for my normal routine. He knows all of these things. And Christian, do you understand, even though we don't like to go through these things, can you trust him? Will you trust him for these things, knowing that he knows all things? He's going to prepare you. He's going to take care of you. Even to the very end, isn't he Emmanuel? Isn't that his name? God with us? Or is he God sometimes with us? Quasi Emmanuel. No, he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He will never leave you nor forsake you, even on your darkest days, even when your wife leaves you or your husband leaves you or your wife passes away or your husband passes away, even if your kids all abandon the faith and they're all going out and being wild, no matter what happens to you, you lose your job, your pickup truck has a flat tire, your dog bites you, somebody steals the you know flag off the back of your car or off the, off the back of your truck and takes your gun rack, God help. (laughs) Anything but take the gun rack. Amen? I'm only kidding. But such is the unregenerate heart of man. Remember that Elijah served God. He didn't serve Ahab. And that's what attracted, I think, Ahab to Elijah. In the text, if you read it, there's meetings between him and Ahab. And Ahab was searching for him so that he could arrest him. But whenever they're together, there's no crowd, you know, crowds or, or, or officers trying to arrest Elijah. There's something about Elijah that Ahab really respected, I think. And remember that to be a servant of God, you cannot be a servant of man. You can't be a servant of of man and be a servant of God. Oftentimes when everyone else around you, even Christians, when they are screaming that you should do one thing or to do another, be obedient to God even if you lose the friends, even if you lose your best friend and they want you to do something else that God has told you to do something opposite, you do what God tells you to do. Even if your family is mad at you because God has told you to do this and they want you to do that, Follow the Lord and leave the rest up to him. You must do that. For if you don't, your life will be messed up. It doesn't mean it's unrecoverable, but you're going to be quenching the spirit. Your life is going to be less than what it could be. Let the Lord work out those details in other people's life, but let him have you completely. How many of you, how many of us, has God have the full reins of our hearts? it's a question to ask privately god do you really have my heart or am i just going through the christian motion the motions of christianity and you know better than most but you know not so bad as others you know no you don't think about that your only one that you compare to is christ and i fall way short and that brings humility to me and that brings me to my knees and oftentimes that's what gets me on the carpet with my nose in the carpet crying out to God. And the world will say, oh, you poor fool, you lack self-esteem. I'm saying, I'm finding my esteem because I'm finding it in him, because I'm finding who I really am. And who am I really? I'm a sinner first and foremost, and I'm saved by grace. That's who I am. I'm a sinner saved by grace. And the order is very important. I'm a sinner first, and I've been saved by grace. And I never want to forget that. but be obedient what is what did paul tell the galatians in chapter 1 verse 10 for i do not persu- for i do, for excuse me he posed the question for do i now persuade men or god or do i seek to please men for if i yet please men i should not be the servant of christ there it is for us don't be a man pleaser be a god pleaser Even if the whole world goes against you, Elijah felt that very much. That's why he would say, as we read tonight, I'm the last one available, Lord, and they even want to kill me. And God let him get away with his pity party, but but toward the end, when he was on Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, he finally said to him, Elijah, you're not alone. I heard you speak that before, and I let it go, but I'm telling you now that there are 7,000 there's a hundred other prophets that Obadiah, remember, uh, fed in the, in the caves when during the drought. They're still there, the hundred prophets. And guess what? There's seven other thousand people who have not bowed down and kissed Baal in worship. God always has his remnant. And if you have real godly friends, they will support you and they will understand you if you are obedient to God, even if nobody else likes it. And if not, then be obedient to God and let the pieces fall where they may. Sometimes the greatest of friendships sever because one has grown carnal and the other one is growing closer to God, and so be it. Because if they are not growing with you, And they are not willing, even if they're not in the same place. As long as you're growing together, that's all that matters. But when you have a friend that decides to turn away, you keep going. You reach out to them. You love them. You tell them the truth. You try to throw out the the life preserver and bring them to you. But if they will not, then you keep going. Don't let any earthly friendship keep you. Notice in verse 2, it says, Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So this is a direct threat from Jezebel. And we found out about Jezebel in chapter 16, and it tells us in verse 31 a little bit about this woman. It says, And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing for Ahab to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter, Daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him, completely giving himself up and not serving Jehovah, but rather serving this false god. So now, this young lady is being brought up in a very uh, privileged environment. She's the queen, or she's the king's daughter. So Jezebel, as a young woman. Her, her dad's king, assuredly, he gave her the very best of everything the world could offer. She was born with the proverbial silver spoon in her mouth. And her father was an idolater, and she learned to be an idolater as well. And was very likely a very selfish, self-centered woman. She probably went to the best schools, had the best clothing, was in the right social circles, and from the world's perspective, she married into privilege and authority by marrying Ahab, king of Israel. And after this chapter, in chapter 21, we see that she usurps Ahab's authority and has another man killed because Ahab was lusting for this man's vineyard, and the man wouldn't sell it to Ahab But she goes up and above, usurps the king's authority, uses his own signet ring, makes things happen, has the man killed, and then presents this vineyard to her husband, and God, through Elijah, will pronounce judgment, not only upon Ahab, but also upon Jezebel. And we'll see that. But notice how off-kilter this relationship with Ahab and Jezebel was. Even though he was the king of Israel, Ahab seemed to have little authority over his own house and his reign. She was ruling not only her house, but also she was the power behind the throne and the kingdom. And she's the one who initiated the uh, the contract on Elijah's head it wasn't Ahab. It wasn't him. It was her. And he did nothing to stop her. And as the husband, as the man of the home that God had created him to be, he should have said to his wife, you will not do this thing. It's wrong and you're not going to do it. And if she was a godly woman, which she's not, she would have gladly submitted to her husband because that's God's order. And even though Ahab could have seized Elijah and imprisoned him, notice that it was, it was her. So let me ask you a question. When do you know that God has let a culture or a people or a country go What are some of the symptoms, the hallmarks of a society or a people or a country when God has kind of taken his hand off the steering wheel and let them do what they want? Well, Isaiah tells us in chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, God speaking through Isaiah the prophet concerning Judah and Jerusalem says this. In verse 12, he says, As for my people, notice, children are their oppressors and women rule over them. Children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, God says, those who lead you cause you to err and destroy the way of your paths." And it doesn't mean please understand this before I even get on this. Women have a wonderful role and God has given men a wonderful role and when they fall into those roles there is there's peace and there's harmony and it works the way God intended. But whenever we start mixing and matching these roles and abdicating roles to the other, we create a hellstorm in our life and in our family and in our culture and that's exactly what we're seeing but the man is to be the head over the woman it doesn't mean that the man is smarter it doesn't mean that the man is more capable there are men women who are smarter than their husbands and more capable sometimes than their husbands but it doesn't matter because God has said I want you husband to be the head and your wife is to be submitted to you but you are to treat her with the utmost respect. You are to love her as Christ loved the church. And is that a tall order, guys? Yes. That's a really tall order. And that's a sobering thought. So it's none of this bravado. I'm the man, the king of the jungle, pounding his chest. Woman, do what I tell you to do. Where's my slippers? Where's my pipe? Where's my dinner? Where's the evening paper? I want this all ready. So that I walk in the house and put down my briefcase, tell how dated that is, right? Put down my, I'm thinking of, you know, Leave it to beaver or something. You know, you better do all this stuff. In Genesis 3.16, God pronounced judgment upon the serpent, upon Adam, and upon Eve. But one of the things he said to Eve, he says, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. These are the, the consequences of her sin of uh, of rebelling against God's word, God's word, and caving into the desire. Notice what he says to her: "Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you." And this word "desire" literally means a longing after, uh, and it's not like a, a, a physical longing after. It's more like I want your authority, I want to rule over, and that's exactly what we see in a society when God is. When they have made their run and God has lifted his hand, you're going to see children be their oppressors and women are going to rule over. And we see that in our culture today. And again, it has nothing to do with the ability of a woman. See, Jesus is not a male chauvinist. We have to dismiss that thought altogether. He loves women. He loves his creation. He loves men and he loves women. He's made them with a purpose. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, what does it say? Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Notice, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. That's a big deal. Do you find Jezebel fitting this scripture? Do you find her submitting to her husband? No, she's not submitting at all. She's running over him as fast as she can because there's a weakness in him. But instead of understanding that weakness and staying away from that and just submitting herself and let God deal with him, because God can and does, just because you have the strength and the power to jump over him and get the job done, you are missing what God wants to do. The better thing for you ladies to do is to pray for your husband, encourage him in it, and push him before the Lord (laughs) and let God deal with him. Trust me, he will have a much better job at getting through to your husband than you will. But if you jump over him and you decide to usurp whatever authority God has given to him, you're creating a problem for yourself and your family and yourself. In 1st Timothy chapter 2 verse 12 Paul said this, I suffer I don't allow a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man but to be in silence for Adam was first formed and then Eve. Yes. To have a woman to be in a pulpit teaching over men and women God has made a man to do that. That's why there's male pastors and any woman who's in the pulpit is not obeying the Lord. And yes, I said that. And I'm sure I'm going to get an email and I don't really care. You can argue with God. I suffer not a woman to teach. Now, teach in Sunday school, yes, the children, because that's part of God's role for her, to bring up to nurture the kids and to minister to other women. Yes, all of those things. But that's why Paul would say, but not to usurp the authority over a man. But a woman's role in the family, in the church, and society is extremely important. But their roles are defined by God. And if they are to be truly blessed and submit to their God-given roles, their house will be a home. Their house will be a home and a peaceful, safe haven rather than a battleground and a place of strife. And unfortunately, most houses in America are just the opposite of that. There's strife and it's a battleground. Men have abdicated their roles to their wives. Women, a very able woman, is more than happy to get the job done and just steamroll her husband. But Jezebel was a woman in charge and would step on anyone who would get in her way. If she were alive today, she would be running for governor of New York or California and have her eyes firmly fixed on the White House if she wasn't already there. And if she was already there, she would seek to be the head of the United Nations because she was so full of pride and so used to usurping authority. And I'm sure that her father's, or her mother, probably did the same thing to her father. But she says something interesting. So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I don't make your life, Elijah, as a life of one of those prophets of Baal that you slew, by one of them tomorrow, about this time, your head's going to be on a stick. That's what she says to him. And we will see that God, that her God, or we'll see that God will give her her wish. In 1 Kings 21, God, through Elijah, pronounces judgment against Jezebel. We we haven't gotten that far, but he will say this, and he says this. Elijah, speaking on God's behalf, says this. He says, the dog shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. But there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord. And why? Because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. He didn't take authority over his own house. He didn't take authority over his own kingdom. Instead, he allowed her to rule over him, and she loved that. And when there was peace in the house it was because he kept his mouth shut and let her do what she wants. Is that any way for a house to be? Maybe your house is like that. Now, what's the solution to that? Do you walk, go home and say, you know, and, you know, pull out the staff like Gandalf, you shall not pass. You know, I mean, are you going to go home and do that and, and destroy your, your marriage? No, you don't do it that way. You pray and you talk to your wife and you pray and you talk to your wife And you wait and you pray and you talk to your wife and let God work in her too. Don't go browbeat her. Let God do his work in her just like he's going to be doing in you. And Elisha, one of the sons, uh, called one of the sons of the prophets, we'll see this in, in 2 Kings, which we're not anywhere near there yet. He's going to speak to Yehu, and among other things, he said to him that the dog shall eat Jezebel on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and there shall be none left to bury her. And and that literally came to pass in 2 Kings chapter 9, her violent death. She was thrown out of a window. You can read it for yourself. We won't go there tonight. But in 2 Kings chapter 9, beginning in verse 30, um, Yehu comes into the town, and the eunuchs that were up in the tower with Jezebel uh, threw her out, and she hit the the side. And it's pretty graphic, what it says. Their blood spilled and on the side of the thing. And then... Um, Yehu went inside and had uh, something to drink, something to eat, and he came back out, and the dogs had literally taken her pieces by piece, her hands, her head, her feet, and God fulfilled the prophecy that he said he was going to do. Why? Because she was a wicked woman, and she did not repent. She did not. She would not. She could have, but she did not and would not So let's go on to verse 3 and notice when he, Elijah, when he saw that Jezebel had it out for him, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. Now this place called Beersheba uh, from up north, uh, somewhere to the west of the Sea of Galilee, if you go straight down the Jordan Valley and you continue going to the very south of Judah, the very southernmost city is Beersheba. It's about a 70 mile hike. And so So he goes and he takes off there. And so after this huge square off with the prophets, he runs. And and I I don't believe that Elijah was too afraid of Ahab because he knew he was rather impotent and had not been uh, bent on arresting Elijah. But Jezebel was a very real threat. And when you look at this word, when he saw, the word saw literally means literally or figuratively to perceive or to consider and when he saw, when he perceived and considered very carefully her words, instead of being a, a man of faith, he became a man of unbelief. He ran after this huge, huge thing that he did. And usually that's the way it works. I don't know if you've noticed that. But when God does something and you've had this great, huge battle in your life and you, you become victorious and God does it through you and, and you, you've done this great thing and everybody's like, wow, you know. And you're like, wow, I can't believe God did that through me. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And then moments later, you're running for your life because a woman said, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you, my little pretty. You and your little dog, Toto, too. He runs. Instead of being a man of faith, he becomes a man of unbelief. But the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So what is wrong here? What is wrong? Elijah was acting in fear rather than by faith. Did God tell him to run for his life to go to Beersheba? No, it's not recorded in Scripture. And God will ask Elijah two times, and we read it earlier, uh, just earlier in verse 9 and verse 13, when he was on Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, God asked him twice, what are you doing here, Elijah? I would love to hear the tone of God when he said that. Was it, what are you doing here, Elijah? Or was it, what are you doing here? Because the tone means everything, doesn't it? But whatever it was, it was right And it was the right thing for God to do. And so notice that in spite of his fear, in spite of his fear, notice that God didn't berail him. He didn't berate him. He continued to minister to him. He was, even though he was a man larger than life, he was still a man nonetheless and subject to corruption and frailty. We saw a similar thing with King David, remember? He defeats this nine foot champion over nine feet, he defeats Goliath, and then, you know, he runs for his life from Saul. You know, his own countrymen. He runs and then he goes up to Gath and and, and he's with the Philistines and and he walks in there and, and he feigns himself to be kinda crazy and his spit is dropping down in his beard and he's scratching on the wall, you know. Red rum, red rum, you know, and he's he's just wigged out not one of David's favorite days, not one of his most faithful moments in his life. But isn't it true that sometimes even the spiritual giants that we tend to put on a pedestal don't ever do that? They're just men and women, and they have moments of frailty and, 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 um, and suffering and sin, even. Put your faith and trust in Christ not in any man. No matter how big his ministry is, no matter how big his radio program is, no matter how many people watch him on television, he's just a man at the end of the day. He's a man in God's image, just like you and I. Never forget that. Exalt Christ, not a man. Amen? So he went to Beersheba, and like I said, from, from Jezreel down to Beersheba is about a 70-mile hike. But he himself, verse 4, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that God might take his life. And he said, it's enough. Now take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And so he, he goes out to this, this remote area in, in, in Beersheba. And he goes out there, and he, he goes out even further now. He leaves his servant in Beersheba. He goes out even further and he sits down under what is called a broom tree or a juniper tree. And it's about a 12, it can grow about 12 feet tall. And it's just enough to get some shade. And so he goes underneath this thing and he's just despondent. He's just like, Lord, this woman's after me. She really means it. I know she means business because she's a Fortune 500 gal and she's coming after me. And, uh, and, 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 and he's hiding. I wonder what would have happened if he'd have just stayed put. If he'd have just said, Lord, what would you have me to do? You've heard the threats of Jezebel. I wonder what history would have changed if, if he would have just prayed and said, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this about this great man of God, but I've got my own issues too, and I, I make these mistakes just like we all do. But do you ever wonder what would have happened if he'd have just prayed and said, Lord, what would you have me to do? Maybe the Lord would just say, stay put, I've got you covered. She's going to try to come, but in route to coming to your house with a bunch of soldiers, I'm going to smote them all with blindness. They're going to be groveling on the floor. Has he done that before? Yes, he has, and he can do it again. And he can preserve his prophet regardless, and, and, and not have his prophet running. God can do that. So then, as he lay under the, the broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and there was by his head was a, a cake uh, 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 you know bread on coals and a jar of water, and he ate and he lay down again and the angel notice the angel of the Lord underline that the angel of the lord now I, I think it 's very possible that this could be a pre incarnate visitation of Jesus Christ whenever you see in the scripture the angel of the Lord is usually a pre incarnate visitation of Christ, meaning before he came into the womb of the Virgin Mary, before that happened, way back here in history, Jesus would show up at different times in Israel's history for different reasons, and I believe this could be one of them, because it says the angel of the Lord, and um, we call it a theophany. Or a pre-incarnate visitation. We see this in Joshua chapter 5. When Jesus, standing before the commander of the Lord's army, before they're about to go against Jericho, there's this commander of the army with his sword drawn. And he says, Take off your shoes, Joshua, for you stand on holy ground. And he received worship, which means that it, it was not, no angel receives worship unless it's Lucifer. But this man clearly was not Lucifer, so it could only have been Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate, the commander of the Lord's army, and he received Joshua's worship. It also appeared to Abraham in Genesis 19 as he's standing in, the, in, his, uh, in his tent, and he receives these three visitors right before the uh, destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It speaks of one of them as being the Lord himself, yes, Yahweh. God speaking to him in the, in the form of a man. Moses at the burning bush in the desert in Exodus 3. Yes, the angel of the Lord speaking to Gideon in Judges chapter 6. Or even Samson's mother and his father Manoah. God speaking to them by an angel of the Lord speaking to them in Judges 13. And that's just a few But notice at the end of verse 17, he says, Arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. See, even though the Lord didn't tell Elijah to go to Horeb or Mount Sinai, God knew where he was going to go. Elijah didn't need to go to God and say, You know what, God, I was up in Jezreel up there next to the Sea of Galilee, but I'm going to take a hike, not to Beersheba. I'm going to go even further down to Mount Sinai where it all began. That's where I'm going. He didn't say anything, but God knew where he was going. He says, the journey's too long for you, Elijah. You're going to need to eat. And he provides for him the sustenance that he needs. So he arose and ate and drank. He went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights. Incidentally, the same path that Elijah, that the Israelites made when they left Egypt, going into the Promised Land, is going to be very similar to what Elijah did. Because he went down to Mount Horeb, or Mount Sinai, and he's going to travel And remember how long it took the Israelites to go. It was 40 years that they went, you know, and God purposely made them stay in the desert for various reasons, which I won't go into now. But notice it took 40 days, more than double of the time that it should have taken for him to get there. He could have gotten there in 20 days if he continued every day. But God was content with letting the prophet take his time. And I think there's something symbolic in this as well. And just as Moses was prepared in the desert for 40 years before he led the children of Israel out of Egypt, it was also 40 days in the desert for Elijah as God was preparing him for his next commission, which we'll read about in uh, verse 15. So he went into a cave and he spent the night in that place, and behold, um, the word of the Lord came to him and said, Elijah, what are you doing here? And, and, and he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars, they killed your prophets, I'm left and they seek my life. Everything in Elijah's statement there was true except for the last sentence. Again, he wasn't the last. There were a hundred other prophets alive that Obadiah had, had kept and then in First Kings 19, God will say to him, I've reserved 7,000 in Israel. We don't have uh, time to go there, but I'd write in the margin of your Bible right about now this reference. And it's Exodus chapter 33 beginning in verse 12 through 23. So Exodus 33, 12 through 23. But basically what it is, before we're gonna, we've already read this, so you know what's coming. But in Exodus 33, God, when uh, Moses and the children of Israel were commanded to leave Sinai, Uh, Moses didn't want to leave unless God God went with them. And he said, show me your glory, remember. And God had hid him in the cleft of the rock. He said, Moses, you can't see me face to face. Moses says, Lord, I want to see your glory. If you don't go with us, we don't want to go. Show me your glory. And God says, I can show you my glory, but you can't see the front part of my glory. No man has seen me and lived he goes, but I will hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'll cover you as my glory passes by and then I'll remove my hand and you can see my hinder parts of my glory. Only then are you going to be able to live. And it's the same place, we believe. It's very possible, the very same cleft of the rock that Elijah is now in. He now goes down there to Horeb and he's probably in the same exact place and this is what we see um, And God says to him in verse 11, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord and behold, the Lord passed by and a great strong wind tore into the mountains. But the Lord wasn't in the wind and an earthquake and the Lord wasn't in the earthquake and then a still small voice. And, and after the fire, nothing but a still small voice. And I notice, um, I love that because in the world, might makes right and you think of all those that display of God's glory in the in the wind and the earthquake and the fire all very dramatic scenes that just make your eyes go that big around but God all that he didn't speak but then after all of that God speaks in a small voice but the lord was not in the things that destroy was he he was in the things in the still small voice. In Isaiah, I love this verse. Isaiah twenty eight, verse twenty one. It says, For the Lord shall rise up as in Mount Perizim, he shall be wroth as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his strange work, and bring to pass his act, his strange act. And what is that act? It says judgment. God doesn't speak in I mean he can, and he does at times, but he loves to speak to his children in that still small voice, not in the dramatic fireworks that The world would applaud. He would much rather speak kindly and softly to us. Remember that Jesus is the Logos, He is the Word of God, and just He's the very thought and the express image of God. And Jesus' first advent advent was one bringing peace with the intent on bringing many to salvation, but His was a still voice. In Isaiah chapter 42, what does it say concerning the Messiah? Uh, prophesying uh, 700 years before christ would be born it says this behold my servant whom i uphold my elect one and whom my soul delights i have put my spirit upon him he will bring forth justice to the gentiles and here it is he will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street the gentleness of christ the gentleness of god that's what this is about. God is speaking to Elijah in, a, in the most gentle way. And when Jesus came back, when he came his, in his first time, he was peaceful and gentle. But let me tell you, when he comes back in the second coming, it is for wrath and for judgment. There will be no peace. There will be no quiet. It's going to be a bloodbath. And worthy will they be who endure these things. But God does not delight in the death of the wicked. It is not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So it really is a choice, again, isn't it, for us. I can either choose to go my own way, or I can choose to go God's way. I think I'll take God's way. His way is peace, and I'm going to live forever with him. Why would anybody reject that? Well, we know why, because we like our sin more than we love God. And if you're in that place of loving your sin more than you love God, then you've got to go back to the prayer closet and say, Lord, remove this rebellious heart of mine. Take my heart and massage it. Soften it with oil, Lord. Make me submissive to you once again. And forgive me for my attitude. Forgive me for my sin, Lord. And do you think he will? Of course he will. Whenever we come to him with a, 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 a contrite heart, he will not despise. In a broken spirit, he, he will open his arms like, a, like the father with the prodigal son coming to him. See, that's the way we need to do it. Let yourself be broken and come to him. Verse 15 now belongs, it begins God's new commission for Elijah. And I'll just get through this really quickly. Thank you for your patience. It says, The Lord said to him, Go return. Now Now that you're down there in Sinai, what I want you to do, Elijah, is to now go north and go and return to the way of the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, I want you to do three things. I want you to anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also, number two, you shall anoint Yehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, uh, Of Abel, Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And also you shall anoint... I already said that, excuse me, in verse 16. Now, Elijah would personally anoint Elisha. He would do that personally. But we know those other two commissions that God had given them would actually come through his successor, Elisha. Elisha would... Be the one who would anoint Hazael king over Assyria. And it would be a servant of Elisha's that would anoint Yehu as king over Israel. And notice, it shall be, verse 17, that whosoever kills escapes the sword of Hazael, Yehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Yehu, Elisha will kill. The whole idea behind this was God was going to put an end to Baal worship. And he was going to use these three men to root it out. To use this Syrian king, to use Yehu, and to use Elisha. These three men God was going to be using to root it out. In verse 18, God responds to Elijah finally and says, You thought you were alone, Elijah, and I understand that. That's what a despondent person does. I, I know they have the Eeyore complex, you know. Oh, woe is me, and nobody loves me, and God has abandoned me, and my dog bit me, and my cat scratched me, and I got this. Fever now, and you know, God says, I have reserved seven thousand in Israel all who have not bowed the knee to Baal and whose mouth has not kissed him and God always has a remnant and so it says that he departed from there and as he's going north now from Mount Horeb or Sinai he goes north and he finds Elisha the son of Shaphat somewhere in the middle of the Jordan Valley in between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee somewhere in the middle there was where Elisha was and he passes by he throws his mantle on him while he's out plowing with a yoke of oxen. And, and then Elisha says, please let me kiss my father and my mother and I will follow you. And, and Elisha basically replies, do do that, you know, do that. And it wasn't that, you know, when we think of Luke chapter 9, there is a, uh, a passage where it says, you know, if a, if a person puts their hands to the plow, they're not worthy if they look back. This was not one of those things. This was just a oriental custom that before you go, and leave your father's work, you're going to go talk to him and basically say, this is what I'm doing, and I'm going. And Elijah comes to that gathering, and they have a big feast. And so Elijah's there, Elisha's there, and everything is made known to the family, and there evidently was peace with the whole thing. And so Elisha immediately follows Elijah, his successor. And we're going to see in the life of... Elisha, when we get to 2 Kings, his ministry. In fact, other than Jesus Christ, Elisha will do more miracles than anyone else in the Bible. He'll do twice as many as Elijah did. And we'll find out why that is. But interesting, isn't it? Just to see this this character, you know, Jezebel, and to see how a very faithful man Like Elijah could run. It sort of reminds me of the the elephant in the wild. You know, an elephant can face off with a lion and, you know, he can stand there with his trunk waving back and forth and the lion can jump on him and he can shake him off and stomp on him and break his ribs. But a little mouse comes into the room or a little mouse goes by and that elephant starts to dance. Isn't it interesting? This big thing all of a sudden become scared of this little thing. And so it's good to keep our faith and our trust in him, right? Trust in the Lord with all of our heart. Lean not on your own understanding, which is what Elijah did. But in all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. He shall do that. I wonder how things would have been different. But tonight we talk a lot of, about a lot of things, you know, just about roles of women as well, and don't be a Jezebel. Jezebel is never a good name. In fact, in the book of Revelation, in chapter three, it talks uh, Jesus writing to the church at Thyatira. There was a woman who was named Jezebel. Evidently, one of the, pa- the a pastor of Thyatira. Evidently, perhaps even this man's wife, and she was unfaithful. And her name just happens to be Jezebel. And she she seduced the servants into sexual impurity. So Jezebel is not a good name. So if you have kids, ladies, if you have a daughter, name her something other than Jezebel. And guys, if you have a son, don't call him Judas. But take these things to heart. You know, they're good lessons for us. They're, they're right there for Nothing has really changed. We, we, it, these things that Jezebel is doing with the usurping authority over her husband, these things are happening in the homes of many, even in the church. But deal with them graciously and lovingly. Be in prayer and encourage. Don't go in and stomp and yell and scream. We're going to get this right tonight. We're going to turn this boat around. We're going to put up a new sail and we're going to start this thing off right. You sit down. You sit down and get that smirk off your face and suck in that gut. Get a haircut, son. I mean, you don't you don't go in there and do that kind of thing. Gentleness, prayer. <laughs> Very hard for us to do that, but it 's the right way to do it love, love, love treat your spouse the right way, lovingly pray for them and encourage their faith because you need to be encouraged in your faith let 's stand together i 've kept you long enough. Thank you for your patience. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we 've read tonight and Lord, just for the encouragement, the exhortation, and even the warning, Father, of some of these things. And Lord, make us men and women of faith. Lord, that before we run and tuck tail and head for the hills, Lord, may we always, before we are... uh, Uh, thinking about doing something spur of the moment and acting in the moment and the passion of the moment, Lord, and making a snap decision, Lord, help us to be very, very careful, especially in times like that, Lord, and help us, especially in the time that we live in right now, Lord, not to to live under the specter and the, the, the shadow of fear. Lord, help us not to do that. Help us to remember who our Savior is, who our God is. Help us to remember that you are almighty God. There's no one, there's nothing in heaven above or in earth beneath that can pluck us out of your hands. Lord, you are sovereign and awesome, and you are loving, and you're a wonderful creator. We love you so much, Jesus. And We thank you for this night. Please minister and speak in that still small voice to us tonight, Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.